0: Welcome to Deconstructing Yourself, the podcast for meta-modern mutants interested in meditation, hardcore dharma, neuroscience, the earth-sea cycle, predictive processing, tantra, non-duality, awakening, and a whole bunch more stuff. My name is Michael Taft, your host on the podcast, and in this episode I'm speaking with guest Katie Devaney. Katherine Devaney, is a neuroscientist and meditation practitioner with over 20 years of meditation experience. Katie earned her Ph.D. in 2018 using fMRI to examine attention and default mode network function in experienced Vipassana meditators. After completing her postdoctoral fellowship at Harvard Medical School, Katie moved to Berkeley to start the Berkeley Alembic Foundation with myself and Eric Davis. Katie is currently the Executive Director of the Alembic and Chief Science Officer of Journey.io and a researcher at the UC Berkeley Center for the Science of Psychedelics. And now, without further ado, I give you the episode that I call A Conversation with Katie Devaney. Katie, welcome to the Deconstructing Yourself podcast.
1: Thanks. It's good to be here.
0: It's good to be here. You know, we see each other all the time. So it's Mm -hmm. kind of funny to be doing this in separate buildings, 30 miles apart or something, but uh, (laughs) this is just convenient for recording. So Mm -hmm. thanks for dealing with all that. Happy to. Cool. So for those listening, Katie and I, and also the illustrious Eric Davis, co-founded a nonprofit in the past, what would it be, 18 months? Yeah. Called the Berkeley Alembic Foundation, or simply Alembic. So we will probably discuss some of that today. But Katie, I just want to dig in with some of your stuff. You know, you're both a neuroscientist trained at Harvard in fMRI. Mm-hmm. and a hardcore meditator, long-term meditator, meditation freak, <laughs> and, um, and yes. other types of freak. So <laughs> how'd you end up studying neuroscience?
1: Yeah, it was both just a lot of good luck and then following what was alive for me. So I started undergrad as a double major in English and chemistry. So I was always kind of a weirdo. I liked English but not history and chemistry but not physics. And so I'm double majoring in English and chemistry. And due to a series of coincidences, one involving several experiences going back and forth through the Paisley Gate as they call it, and a lifelong at that point interest in meditation. I've been interested in meditation since I was like 8 and saw a documentary on the Beatles and the part where they go to Rishikesh. I remember where I was when I saw that, like I was sitting on the floor of my parents' house and maybe it was just the bright clothing or something, but there was this thing in me that was just like, yes, that is the thing.
0: It couldn't be many, many past lives of meditation.
1: No, I mean, it's just, it's just the Beatles wearing cool clothes, obviously. <laughs> right? Exactly.
0: <laughs> which they weren't doing, you know, all the rest of the time.
1: Yeah, it was like a gong like went off in my chest. So I was interested in it for a long time. And I was lucky enough to be in college in Western Massachusetts, which at the time, there were only six Goenka centers in North America. And one of them was like an hour away from my campus. And I met someone the first day of college who had both sat a Goenka retreat and was a neuroscience major. It was one of the few undergrad campuses at the time that had a neuroscience program. So my sophomore year, partially with like a nudge from my friend or he was like, you know, I've sat a retreat here. Yes, 10 days is a long time. I had a good experience. And I was like, "Okay, cool. Like my friend did this. I can do it. I had no idea what I was in for. But I went and sat this 10 day retreat and I came back. And partially due to experiences I had on that retreat and partially due to experiences I had had with altered states of consciousness in the year leading up to the retreat, my inclination was much like, you know, when you're like nine and you take apart the VCR so you could figure out how it works. Yeah, that was my sense with the brain. My way of thinking at the time was, well, all of these different transient and stable consciousness changes that I've experienced have to have neural correlates. And you know, what am I doing over here studying chemistry when I could be looking at consciousness by looking at into the brain. So for a long time, I was conducting these two lines of inquiry, the sort of like introspective meditative line of inquiry, and then the neuroscience line of inquiry out in the world, separately and in parallel. Because when I started meditating, You couldn't really talk about it in academic circles. It was still kind of like yoga was cool, but still kind of hippy-dippy. But meditation, people thought you were in like a cult or something. And there were some very brave people back then at the forefront of bringing this into the discussion in academia. But I was just starting out. So I spent a long time studying the visual system, how vision works, how we recognize objects, how attention works. And in parallel, I was still doing my hour in the morning, hour in the evening of going to practice and just not talking about it at work.
0: The secret underground
1: world of <laughs> meditating scientists. <laughs> exactly. And when we'd find another one, like at a conference or something, it was always like, oh, cool. Like, what are you doing? You know, and what are you studying? And well, how's your practice? And But it was rare back then. And then slowly over time, I've been able to bring those two worlds closer and closer together until now. It's just... It's just one big festival.
0: (laughs) (laughs) One big continuous festival. Yeah. You know, the thing you alluded to, but did not unpack at all, is the Paisley Gate. Mm -hmm. What are you talking about there? He said, knowing full well what she was talking about. Full
1: well. I could hear the (laughs) eyebrow raise, like, over the phone here. (laughs) So my personality is a very curious explorer type, even before any kind of psychedelic experience I had, but I was very, very lucky to come across psilocybin mushrooms right after I had read the allegory of the cave. And just to date myself here, The Matrix had either just come out or was about to come out. Wow.
0: So 1999.
1: Yeah. (laughs) And those three things all kind of put together. Like, I think I'd read the allegory of the cave like a week before I ate mushrooms for the first time. And it provided this incredibly useful scaffold for the experience that I was then having. I had a context for it. And I've heard the theory out there that some people are just psychedelic people. You know, some people can sort of eat a serotonergic psychedelic, have a lovely Saturday night and go back to their lives. And other people eat a serotonergic psychedelic and have this experience where they're like, I have pierced the veil. I have seen through the illusion to like what's real. And that's the thing. And that was very much the experience I had with the sort of like voraciousness that you can only have when you're that young, you know?
0: Which one of those two is a psychedelic
1: person? The second one, Michael.
0: (laughs) Well, it seems like the first one they're like able to handle it in one way, but in another way, are getting nothing out of it. So I'm yeah. just curious. Yeah.
1: I mean, I have this theory. I'll just put this out there. Someone should look at this, and I, I don't have time. But I have this theory that it's probably about 5-HT2A receptor density in the brain. You might be able to predict who's going to like really resonate. With serotonergic psychedelics, if you could map uh, 5HT2A receptors and like quantify the individual differences between them, but
0: so interesting. I always thought it would just be you're mildly depressed because you don't have enough serotonin, and you take a psychedelic, and suddenly you've got more than you're used to, and everything just feels good.
1: There's feeling good, and then there is like, I have seen the truth. Yeah, that's true. There's sort of this arc that I think, if you have good context for your psychedelic practice, where the arc goes through transcendence into imminence, where you kind of move from this thing of, oh, the truth is over there, and I'm just one more ceremony. I'm just one more journey from really integrating it to, you know, eventually seeing through that and going into, like, it's always right here.
0: Yeah. I'm curious, you're talking about how meditation and neuroscience really fed back into each other. So how does the triumvirate work, including the Paisley-Gate stuff?
1: Yeah. Well, to be honest, it's funny. Before I couldn't admit that I was doing psychedelics, and now I feel funny admitting that I'm not doing them.
0: (laughs) Well, let's say in the past, how did it work together?
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm a big fan of the kind of Ken Wilber way of thinking where, and this is my own gloss on it, obviously, but you're kind of setting your own vision. Like you're looking out at the path that you want to follow and you have all your cultural context and all the context that you've chosen that helps you kind of orient and set your compass. And then in my experience, If a psychedelic experience goes well, it can show you where your practice can go. So, you know, that Buddhist metaphor of like crossing the river and then not needing a raft anymore.
0: Or a boat or whatever vehicle you've used to cross the river.
1: Yeah. Yeah, whatever vehicle. And psychedelics can kind of catapult you, for better or worse, across to the other side of the river for a little while. And then you always end up back on the side you started, though, and then you can kind of figure out how to navigate back there. And it gives you like a little waypoint to orienteer towards.
0: Yeah, and at least you've seen the other shore partially, maybe vaguely, maybe with obscurations, but still you have some sense of what that might be like. Yeah,
1: Yeah. exactly. So you have this reference state that then you're working towards, and You know, you never want to confuse the reference state with just living your life well. (laughs) Like the point isn't to be seeing psychedelic dragons all the time, unless that's like really your jam and it's going to make you a better person in your relationships or something. But it gives you a sense of like, okay, if I keep doing this practice, I now have a little bit more of a map. I have a point that I'm orienting towards.
0: Yeah. And so again, coming back to the question, what about the neuroscience in there?
1: So The neuroscientific way of thinking and like lens and discoveries that we've been making recently about meditation and I mean, the psychedelic science is just taking off like crazy right now. I see interesting ways that that's kind of like moving out into the culture. So I'll talk about that for a second and then I'll talk about what it's done for me. I think the further away you get from the people doing academic neuroscience the more the neuroscience becomes kind of a metaphor and people are kind of pointing at the science as a way to ground their technique in a kind of like, you know, materialist lens, which you sort of have to do now to be taken seriously by anyone.
0: That's the religion of our society. And just like in, let's say, historical Buddhist or Hindu context, you always had to reach back and sort of ritually touch some ancient text in order to gain credibility. Here you have to ritually touch neuroscience. It's just sort of like a fetish. You touch the neuroscience and it gives you credibility.
1: <laughs> I've noticed this great thing that happens. You know, we have all these events at Olympic about all different types of things, but I could tell when someone's about to start talking about the brain because they like look at me like skittishly. <laughs> and then they'll start talking about the default mode network and, uh, and then they'll kind of add a disclaimer like, but you should probably talk to Katie about that later. <laughs> I um, to talk someone
0: who actually knows at least something about it later.
1: Yeah. And then it can seem like because it's sort of the default cultural religion now that materialism thinks it can explain everything and thinks it can understand everything. And that's like the one lens with which to do things. But interestingly, like the closer in you get to actual academic neuroscience, the more people admit that they have no idea what's going on. (laughs) You know, the more you learn about the brain, the more you just are humbled and awed by the complexity and the mystery of the system that we're walking around with using to perceive the world all the time. And that's why we have, you know, a method of scientific inquiry that the first step is admitting you don't know what's going on. And then it's like, okay, cool. Given we don't know what's going on, here's a set of tools we can use to kind of poke reality and get some information back. And then once you do that, you once again, you know, remind yourself you don't know what's going on. Mm -hmm. And then you try to interpret the information you got back out. And one thing that has been really cool for me in my work as an investigator is, first of all, I've gotten to watch how the experiments I run actually reflect where my practice is, because the questions I'm asking are informed by both the thread of what's the science that's come before, and also the thread of like, what are the questions that I think are interesting? So if you look at my thesis work for my PhD, I was still doing Goenka meditation, and my whole PhD is about attention and attention training. That's for two reasons. One, it was what I could get you know, funding for. I only mentioned the word meditation once in my grant proposal. And the whole rest of the proposal, I talked about attention training, because that's kind of what you had to do then. But it also reflected where my practice was at. It's like, that's what I thought meditation was. And most of the benefits I had gotten at that point were about having at least a modicum of freedom over where my attention went. And also, I had noticed an increase in what felt like kind of the perceptual resolution of my whole system. And I thought, okay, cool, let's go look for that. And then as my practice has changed, the scientific questions I'm interested in have also changed because I can just ask different questions now with my practice in a different place. You know, when I was a PhD student, I never would have been asking questions about like, what does the brain look like in a maximally dualistic versus a non-dualistic state? Because I thought there were probably three people on earth who could do a non-dual type of meditation. <laughs> I didn't, you know, it was before I came to California. I didn't realize how common that was. <laughs> so the whole thing is an iterative process between like looking at what's come before, looking at what we know and how much confidence we have in what we know, and then asking the next question.
0: Very cool. So... I've been dying to ask you this recently because I think it changes over time. But what's your crackpot theory about how meditation affects the brain? What does it even do, according to Katie Devaney, (laughs) Harvard neuroscientist?
1: (laughs) With several crackpot theories. You're you're asking this because when I was in grad school, I had something I was calling the bonkers theory, which ended up now being kind of the mainstream way of looking at things. <laughs> yeah, so. I'm
0: not. I'm asking it because I was speaking with David McCraney recently, and for the listeners, famously the author of You Are Not So Smart and the You Are Not So Smart podcast, and most recently the book How Minds Change and so on. And he was just going on and on about hearing you talk about what meditation did in the brain and how it was the most brilliant Thing he had ever heard. And so without any pressure, Katie, well, how does meditation affect the brain? Why would anyone meditate?
1: Okay. So the way I've been thinking about meditation for a long time, like since grad school, is through a predictive processing lens. And, you know, you had Shamil on talking about this. So I'll just give a kind of simplified version. But basically, there's way more information out there than we can reasonably process with our limited attentional and biological resources that we have. So,
0: Meaning there's too many books to read?
1: Yes. (laughs) Well, that's just true. But if you're driving, maybe don't do this. But if you're not driving, like if you just right now notice how much information there is in the periphery of your vision, and then maybe all the stuff you can hear right now, and then how you're toe feels like all of that is going on all the time and it would require an enormous amount of resources to process all of that so we basically just can't do that the periphery of your vision by the way if you're still paying attention there you don't have any color vision out there that's all getting filled in by your brain
0: it's colorized
1: Yeah, exactly. It's colorized top down, and it's not coming in from outside. And so what the brain does is it builds models of what is likely to occur in any given context in which you find yourself. You know, if you're in a waiting room, you have particular expectations about what you'll find there. Like if you're in a doctor's waiting room, what's going to be there? You probably have some ideas. If you're at the beach, what's going to be there? what's likely to happen there. And you'll notice this, if you ever have like a city that you visit somewhat rarely, pay attention next time you go there and you sort of step out of the airport or step out of the train station. There's a very interesting thing that happens where you just get delivered this like package of all the memories you have in that city. And it's like the context is loading itself up. And then we just live inside that Model. So we have this context, we have predictions about what's likely to happen in that context. And if the environment matches the prediction well enough, we just say, okay, cool, great. I don't need to process anything here. I can go back to thinking about that thing I did that when I was 12, you know. And we could just navigate based on our contextual predictions. Now, this is interesting because humans used to move between, you know, six, like, contexts in a given lifetime. And now we have (laughs) exponentially more than that. So it's it's an old system that's been kind of clued onto the environment that we live in now. If everything matches the prediction, nothing happens. However...
0: Presumably some kind of feeling of pleasantness.
1: Yeah. Well, this is part of where we go into crackpot theory. You've got a checker kind of running all the time between what you have predicted and what's actually happening. And that checker is just oscillating and looking for anything that's violating the prediction, right? In my theory, like running that checker at all is like kind of stressful, right? Because you're just wondering, like, okay, am I okay? Am I okay? Am I okay? Am I okay? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Super relaxing. (laughs) But because of that checker, if something happens in the environment that you didn't predict, you know, you're at the beach, and then along comes a rhinoceros. For a moment, when something happens that is violated a predictive context that you're in, everything stops and the whole perceptual system in the brain kind of opens up and you encode this new element of the environment, in this case a rhinoceros, with all of the context around it, in this case, the beach. And all of that information is taken in at once And then stored away for future contextual predictions when you have a moment kind of offline, when you don't need to be doing something in the world. So this process of prediction updating is something I'm particularly interested in. And I was looking at a little bit for my thesis, and I'm curious to do more exploration of this. And the reason I find it interesting is that typically we're kind of living in this virtual reality that we've built And we have all of these different kind of perceptual and introspective networks in the brain humming along, maintaining the virtual reality. My theory about what's happening in the default mode network, which is the brain network that comes online when people don't have anything else to do. That's why it's called the default mode network. It's what we default to activating. And this network does things like projecting into the future, remembering the past, and so this is where we get into crackpot territory. My crackpot theory is that the default mode network, when we have idle time, is basically running simulations on the training data of our experience to generate better models for future environments that we need to navigate to generate better predictions.
0: So it's sort of like using the spare cycles to become more efficient.
1: To refine the models. Yeah. Yeah. And then we go out in the world and we've got sort of attention and perception online taking in what we need to navigate a given environment. But most of the information is coming from the prediction about what's likely to happen. And you can see why this makes sense. It's just downsampling the massive amount of data that's out there into a much more manageable way of interacting.
0: Yeah, just to emphasize that point, because it's so interesting, it seems as if the only thing that's getting through are prediction errors. Yes. And the rest of it we're filling in from memory.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And there's a funny other thing just to put out there is that if something happens in the environment that's sort of very close to the prediction, the whole system says, eh, good enough, and doesn't encode it. But also, (laughs) if something happens that's so far outside the prediction, that also doesn't get encoded. So this is not the, like, you don't see the gorilla thing, that's more about attention, but it's like, it's literally, some things are actually inconceivable. And so we just ignore them. (laughs) Is there any actual
0: science about this?
1: I can find a reference for it. I can't cite that off the top of my head. Okay, it's
0: just such a cool idea.
1: I know, isn't that crazy? So there's just all this stuff that it's just too far outside of what we thought of before that we just actually can't process it. But there's this kind of middle zone where, again, like the rhinoceros at the beach example. I was once at an ashram in India and I was walking from like the meditation hall back to my dorm and I turned a corner and there was an elephant. I had never seen an elephant before, let alone one that was just like on a human walkway. It was chilling. Just crazy, yeah. And I saw the elephant, uh, fortunately. But that moment, this is what I'm really interested in, that moment when you update a prediction is a very interesting state in the brain. Because typically, when everything's, you know, quote unquote, normal and going according to plan we have all these different cortical networks. There are different kind of ways of parcellating the cortex out, but let's just say there are seven of them. That's like a nice, simple parcellation. And these seven networks mostly operate... Independently of one another. So they're sort of listening to the nodes of each other, but they're not communicating across networks for the most part. And each network has a specialized function. You know, you have one network that does uh, what's called top down attention. Like this is the kind of attention you use when you're reading a book. So you're focusing on one aspect of the environment and filtering out the rest. There's another network that does bottom up attention, it works like a circuit breaker into the top-down attention. So if you're reading a book and someone calls your name from behind you, you're gonna disengage from the book and reorient behind you. There's a whole network that does just that. There's the default mode network, which we all know and love. (laughs) And -hmm. these networks really only interact with one another except for transient switching signals between them. But when a prediction needs to be updated, There's several signals that happen at several levels of the processing hierarchy, and we're just starting scientifically to be able to document what these are. But there's one area in the cortex called the temporal parietal junction. I spent seven years of my life thinking about this part of the brain. (laughs) It's like a couple millimeters. And it sits in a pinwheel formed by all the other networks. So it's sitting in this kind of hub-like location between all these different cortical networks. And when we have prediction that needs to be updated, the TPJ comes online and several other interesting things happen. One is that, so the TPJ is just kind of behind the a hippocampus, which is like the turnstile to memory, right? And the hippocampus is humming along at a theta frequency, And new information only gets encoded in the troughs of the theta frequency. And when you have a prediction update signal, the TPJ comes online and you get theta phase reset in the hippocampus. And so what I think is happening there is you have this rare moment where information from all these different processing networks is allowed to, like, flow together through the now open gate of the TPJ to the hippocampus to get captured and then stored away, again, for later when you can activate the default mode network and sort of incorporate it into future predictions. And what you have in that moment is this rare time when for just a small amount of time you're outside Of this contextual prediction, virtual reality that you typically live in. And often we don't catch those moments. They're moments of surprise, right? And if you think about what it feels like to be surprised, but not afraid, that's a really beautiful state. There's awe and wonder and kind of delight. And often we don't notice that because we're too busy grabbing all the information coming in from the environment. So this is where we now go full crackpot. What I think...
0: Excellent. (laughs) Let's go embrace the crackpot.
1: (laughs) When you think about what meditation is doing, like across all these different contemplative traditions, the base instruction is basically just like, get out of your conceptual model of what's happening right now and get in to like actually looking at what's there. I don't know if you've ever heard this phrase before, Michael, but uh, just look (laughs) at what is happening. (laughs) Wow. And I think what we're doing there is we're training ourselves to put aside the whole predictive apparatus. You notice I'm shying away from saying, like, get into what's really there. But what I am saying is, like, actually be with the bottom-up Information rather than our top down prediction of what's happening. And I think as we do that more and more, we off the cushion start holding that context, those predictions more lightly. And by default, spend more time closer to the information that's coming in, whether it's coming in from the body or in from the visual system in through the ears, like closer to the sensory experience instead of the top-down maintenance of the predictions of what's happening.
0: Yeah. So we get out of our sort of like canned version of reality or whatever, our canned version of experience that we've got recorded and instead actually start paying attention to what is happening.
1: Yeah. And I think over time, what that does is it kind of attenuates that checking thing. Like if you're not locked into your predictive system, you don't have to run the checker anymore. The, am I okay? Am I okay? Am I okay? You can just let that thing rest. And over time, I think you may even have the flexibility. And again, I have to test all of this. So thank you for leading with crackpot because I have like very little data. I have a little bit of data for some of this, but very little data for a lot of it. But I think what's happening is over time, parts of the brain that normally aren't by default talking to one another are able to start talking to one another as you like repeatedly have this relaxation of the segregated activity that happens when you're kind of inside the model. And I have like a little tiny bit of data on that. And that's going back to your question from a while ago. It's an interesting correspondence between like this slow motion change that happens with meditation and the more transient state-level changes that happen with psychedelics is that same thing has been shown with psychedelics.
0: Just a couple of comments. One is virtually every tradition talks about the experience as someone becomes more awake in the meditative sense, Mm -hmm. that everything is fresh all the time. It's fresh Mm -hmm. and new. So just as a quantitative point that would match potentially the idea that you're, instead of kind of running through your canned predictions, you're actually tapping in more to the data coming in. And it feels fresh, it feels new, it feels slightly unpredictable.
1: And there's this sense of awe and joy and wonder. I mean, think about, you know, actually the relaxation that comes with just getting to be with what's happening rather than continuously checking like, wait, did I know this was going to happen? What's happening? (laughs) (laughs) It's
0: also lightly touchable if you do tons of traveling.
1: Yes, yes.
0: To places you've never been before, things like that. I often notice that that has this lightly meditative effect of just, you don't know what to predict, especially if you're going to very different cultures and so on it starts to have that flavor
1: yeah this is what burning man does for people too it's like a completely unpredictable environment especially the first time you go so you sort of have two choices you can just give up trying to predict it and then people have an amazing time you know that they often just won't stop talking about i was one of these (laughs) when i first went and then the other option is you can just freak out you know and just like you see this with travel too like if you exit a mode where you can predict that checker thing can take over and kind of shut the whole system down. So there's a moment there where you have a choice of whether to kind of lean in and surrender to the unknown, or to just like totally shut down and cease to function.
0: Yeah, this separates the travelers from the non travelers, right? If you just surrender into the flow of whatever's happening. Yes. Versus getting all uptight about it.
1: And this is why, you know, we call it a meditation practice. Like one of the things that happens over the course of a practice, I know this happened to me, like eventually my prediction about where my shoulder was relative to my knee started to kind of dissolve as I was able to just be with kind of the body's, you know, map of itself rather than my top down imposition of the body map onto the body. And that's real weird when it first starts happening and can be kind of terrifying. And then we just titrate over that, you know, we kind of go up to that edge over and over again until we can step over it and learn that everything's going to be okay. And, you know, that helps with the travel too.
0: Right. That particular one Mm -hmm. about discovering that your body doesn't, I'll just put it in these terms, think of itself in the way the mind thinks about the body is really Mm -hmm. powerful. So beautiful and relaxing and start to tune into that fact that the body conceptualizes or sees itself or experiences itself more like some kind of cloud of flowy energy than a bunch of wires and pipes and... mechanisms. (laughs) So just to go in a different direction with this for a minute, just to challenge it, and I'll set this up with a super intense thing. I was reading some meditation teacher on Twitter the other day. I think it was Kenneth Folk. Maybe not, but I think it was Kenneth. And I'll just, from memory, paraphrase. He said something like, looking for neurocorrelates in the brain and trying to understand spirituality and meditation be a brain science, is like spitting in God's eye. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) He said it really strongly (laughs) like that. And I knew what he meant. It's like there's a sense of reductiveness, or people think, well, this is, quote, what's really going on, rather than Mm -hmm. it's just neural correlates. And there's obviously a way that we can look at pretty colored pictures of the brain and think we understand something. Mm -hmm. And there's a way, and this is what he was, I think, pointing at, that that can feel not only reductive, but like reductive to the point of actually smashing all the beauty out of something. And so obviously you love meditation and you do have that sense of the wonder and joy and so on. So I'm just curious, how would you respond to someone who loves meditation and who understands science, but who feels like maybe the science can be a little too aggressive in its worldview, or people can take it as maybe knowing more than it does, or being more of a final arbiter, or I don't know, I'm just throwing out kind of a malformed question, but that's the idea.
1: I think this is partially more about culture than it is about science, but unfortunately, because like, you know, scientific materialism is the dominant cultural paradigm now, they get confused sometimes. And there's a way in which the sort of like reductive materialist frame, it can be like violent, you know, it's like, oh, I'm discounting your entire experience unless I can explain it in materialistic terms. And like I mentioned before, kind of the closer you get to the people actually doing the science, the more humble they get about what we can know and what we can't know. And I think the important thing, and just to mention, like this is what we're trying to do at Alembic is to embody this. The important thing is the way of knowing and the method of inquiry of scientific investigation as like one thread in the tapestry of ways that you can know things. And there's this huge failure mode culturally. And I think it's not helping people and it's alienating a lot of people. Like you have people who have an experience where, you know, they sort of like, okay, I carried this crystal and I had really good luck that day. And I'm going to go into like an internet wormhole of crystal stuff and adopt this crystal worldview and let's investigate it. And to go in a scientific direction and get told that's not science that's not an honest inquiry. Like saying something is not science is a religious statement. That's not a scientific statement. What science is, is a set of tools we can use to investigate reality. And I would hope that, you know, if the crystal person I just made up found the right scientist, they would be able to design an experiment to test some of their hypotheses about crystal stuff. And, you know, you see the same thing with the energy people and like there's all of these different ways of knowing that in their local communities like these people know that this thing works and it's not doing anyone any favors to just say oh that's not science and push them further away scientific investigation has always been and will always be limited by the resolution of our tools and the sophistication of the questions that we can ask and the history of science is a history of expanding knowledge into new areas that we previously had no information about as the resolution of the tools increases and as the level of the questions increases. And so I think this way of knowing that is kind of a cultural side effect of the reductive materialist frame where there's all sorts of stuff that comes along with that there's like a snobbery there's an optimizing mindset like oh if we can just find the neural correlates of awakening we can just zap people into awakening and save all this time that they're spending you know going on the beautiful journeys of their lives to india to find a place to meditate and you know just this like super efficient, super optimizing, discount anything that doesn't have a materialistic framework. That worldview is, I don't know if I would go as far as say spitting in God's, it's a lot to say spitting in God's eye, but that worldview can really hurt people. And instead just backing up and looking at, okay, what is science actually? Like what it is, is this set of tools that we can use as extensions of our own curiosity to investigate our experience. And we can aim those tools at anything we want. And it's not the only set of tools. And I think that attitude counteracts a lot of the sort of like violent optimization that's culturally very prevalent in this reductive materialist frame.
0: Yeah, very good. Thanks for responding to that. Oh, sure. Now, just for the audience, I just want to be totally transparent here and say, we're going to just talk about Alembic for a minute. But of course, Katie's the executive director of Alembic. I'm the president of the board. It's like, I'm asking this with pretty much total knowledge (laughs) with the answer to the question. But I just want to do it so that you guys can learn this out there. So with that background, Katie... So how does all this fit in the Alembic, and what are uh, you guys doing at Alembic?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, (laughs) well, Michael, first, I'll talk about the name for a minute, because I love this story. And everyone who's been in the space uh, who's listening right now is smiling, because at least once a month, I tell everyone what an Alembic is. But we have a joke that the whole point of this. We're an educational nonprofit and the actual education that's happening is we're just teaching everyone what an Alembic is (laughs) because the three of us thought of the name independently and then subsequently realized we're like some of the only people who know what it is. But an Alembic itself was invented by a female alchemist named Mary. And it's a vessel for transformation. And to use an Alembic you place the things you want to transform inside of it, and then you set conditions up in both the environment and in your mind so that the transformation will happen. And the belief was that if conditions in either the environment or the mind weren't correct, the transformation wouldn't happen. So the is a place where mind and matter can meet and transform. And Today, Alembics are still used in distillation, distillation of spirits and in chemistry. So this is very much in the spirit of what we're doing here. What we're offering is basically a kaleidoscope of different practices, whether it's meditation and movement, psychedelic preparation, integration, and then neuroscience and scientific inquiry and citizen science. And we're offering all of these different things to really embody the worldview that any given practitioner knows what's best for them in any given moment of their practice. So the idea is a practitioner can come in and they can bounce off a bunch of different techniques and practices and ways of knowing until they find the one that resonates with them. And then when they do, All of our teachers here are deep representatives of the traditions from which they are coming so that when someone finds the thing that's working for them, they'll be able to go really deep with that. And when they're ready to kind of graduate from that or add something different into their repertoire of practices, they can do that. They can switch practices without losing their community. So we're doing things here to build wider community, like we're having concerts and Parties, and we have these art integration workshops that people can bring their partner to or bring their non-meditating friend, or the like Tuesday night people and the Thursday night people can meet each other. So, we're building this larger meta community across all these different ways of practices. And the hope is that people can talk about what's going on in their practice, can compare these different views across different practices, but also be able to seamlessly switch practices without losing their friends.
0: So that's really cool as a concept. I think so. But I'm also curious, can you describe what's it like on the ground there? I mean, what's the brick and mortar space like?
1: Oh, sure. Yeah. So we have a 5,500 square foot space in South Berkeley, and we have three big practice rooms And then several smaller rooms, a couple lounges and a couple offices. And then one room that's either going to be the neuroscience lab or a sound studio, we will see. So we have one room that has a sprung floor and is soundproof. So we do all the movement stuff in that room. And that's also when we have parties, that's where we put the DJs. Then we have the little room, which is like a smaller classroom. And we use that room for smaller, more intimate events and for teachers who are kind of building is an advantage of having multiple rooms over like a one room schoolhouse is when teachers are building a sangha, we are able to give them like a good time slot and they can have just a couple people showing up to their class and they have a room to do that. I also want to have kind of like more esoteric, you know, reading groups and stuff in there. So, you know, there's like four nerds who really care about a text and they can meet in there and read the text together And then the main practice room, which I'm sitting in the back of right now, has enough space for like over 50 meditators on cushions or more in chairs. And we have this amazing sound and camera system so that everything that happens in this room can also broadcast out onto YouTube or onto Zoom. And that way we hope to be able to reach practitioners who are like the one weirdo meditator you know in their town that used to be me and i I think about those people all the time and start kind of connecting them up with the community also so that's kind of the like layout and one of the cool things that this allows us to do is that we have the meditation room and the movement room but we only have one main entrance that we use Uh, all the rooms have doors but we use one main entrance so you come in and you come into a lounge that has tea and couches and a little library so we want to have a kind of a particle accelerator (laughs) where the people are coming out of the meditation room and the movement room at the same time and they're all streaming through the lounge and they're able to talk to each other and like hey what did you just do in there what did you just do in there? It's very unusual to have both of these practices happening in the same space at the same time. So we want to start being able to build connections between all these different types of practices and those connections happen over tea in the lobby. Very cool. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Well, I just want to mention like, you know, I sort of said this earlier, but we're coalescing around these kind of three different pillars and you can see the founding team reflected in these pillars. with so it's meditation and movement, neuroscience and citizen science in general and psychedelics. And we're running a lot of classes and events and workshops around all three, but we hope like in the zone of e- each of the three and we're also wanting to put them in dialogue with one another. So, you know, Eric Davis ran a class recently, a five-week class on the history of the psychedelic counterculture from the 1950s until now. So, you know, the prevalent way that people are talking about psychedelics now is from a therapeutic lens. And Eric covered basically everything else, you know, starting from the 50s and going up until now. And enough of the community kind of showed up for that, that that knowledge is now kind of in the water of the Alembic community and people are sharing it with each other and that information is informing the way that people think about other things. And so while we have these kind of three pillars, the connections between them are starting to yield some really interesting kind of group knowledge and synthesis that can happen across all three.
0: It's a really powerful and super fascinating experiment that I'm really happy to be a part of. Katie, thank you so much for coming on the show this morning.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: I hope to talk to you again very soon.
1: I bet we will.
0: I bet we will. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Michael. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. That's it for this episode of Deconstructing Yourself. I'd like to let you know about an upcoming retreat with me this summer in Costa Rica. From August 3rd to the 10th, we will come together to focus on non-dual meditation practice, with a particular theme of embodiment of awakening in meditation and in life. For seven days I'll be giving non-dual meditation teachings, practices, and guided meditations, as well as personal meditation instruction, to each member of the group. The retreat will be hosted at the Blue Spirit Retreat Center, located in the Nosara region of Costa Rica's Pacific Coast. The retreat center is perched on a hilltop overlooking the ocean, and a three-mile white sand beach that is a protected turtle refuge. The pristine nature, subtropical climate, and members of the Deconstructing Yourself Sangha will create a unique environment for your meditation, retreat, If you're interested, check out deconstructingyourself.org where there's a link to the information page. I look forward to seeing you there. If you enjoyed the podcast, please recommend it to a friend or talk about it on social media. Doing that helps it find its way to more people who might be interested. If you're moved to support the podcast, you can do that by contributing to the production costs on my Patreon page.